Hey, chocolate lovers. I've got a sweet treat for you for the end of July. It involves Zach Efron, a colorful wolf, and a small ice cream shop. But we'll get to each of those in a bit. My guest today is none other than Kjartan Gistason, co-founder of Omnam Chocolate in Reykjavik, Iceland. Before I started researching this interview, and even after watching their episode of Zac Efron's Netflix show, the list of things I knew about Omnam was very short. It was basically eco-friendly, lots of colors, and chocolate made in Iceland. That's it. But Kjartan's brand, which was founded with his childhood friend, Oscar, has become quite iconic in craft chocolate. And Kjartan himself has a bevy of experience as a chef abroad, and he brings that knowledge to their flavor creation. In this episode, we get into more broad topics, like production capacity and the tourist attractions in Reykjavik, as well as that colorful wolf. So without further ado, here's my interview with Kjartan Gislason. I'll admit, before I started researching this interview, I knew very little about Omnam, and I like to assume that my listeners feel the same. So please tell me about yourself. Who are you, and what brought you to Craft Chocolate? So my name is Kjartan Gislason. I co-founded Omnam back in 2013, or technically 2012, with my childhood friend Oscar. We've been friends ever since elementary school, like 12, 13 years old. We kind of chose a different path. I decided to become a chef and he went into various types of businesses. He was at a time, you know, working as a fisherman. He started quite a few companies, anything from selling glass to bait to fishermen. So, you know, buying real estate. We've always kept in good contact, you know, during our 20s and then in our kind of late 30s, I reconnected with him with this idea because we've always been talking about going into some kind of business together. So me being a chef, I've always been super interested about any kind of food. I'm, I've worked in restaurants for the past 20, 25 years. I've worked in Luxembourg at these kind of old school Michelin restaurants, Norway and Sweden. And so I'm, I'm just kind of like very genuine, interested, you know, food is my hobby and my passion. I've always been interested in new things, trying out something different. I was kind of always drifting to wanting to start my own either restaurant or maybe a pastry shop because I was always a little bit more inclined in the pastry section. So the idea of Ramnam really came from that. But I wanted to, like I say, open up like a bakery slash pastry shop. And I pitched this idea to Oscar at the time and we were talking about it for quite a while and, you know, going through the pros and cons and what would it look like and feel like. And one of the niche things that I wanted to do, because I had kind of been following up on the bean to bar trend, which was, this is like 2010, 11, that I've seen started in the US, for instance, because I always had this picture in my mind that if you have to make chocolate, you need a really big factory to make it. I, I, I didn't think it was possible on such a small scale. So I thought there was a lot of interesting companies at that time starting in the U.S. that I was following, like Dandelion, uh, Patrick, Fruition, Mass Brothers, of course. So I thought it would be a kind of cool thing for the pastry shop that we had like a small chocolate corner where we make our own 
recipes from scratch and you know would then integrate that into the pastries and talking about this idea i think oscar kind of just put it into a perspective for me like why don't we just make the chocolate i feel like you're the most passionate about that so why don't we just focus on the chocolate thing maybe create a brand around it and then see how that goes and we'll open up the pastry shop later if that goes well <laughs> So that was the kind of starting point that we started with. And basically I started researching anything I could find about chocolate making, going online, looking for any kind of recipes or forum sites. And luckily I found the chocolate alchemist, John Nancy at his site. We had like a little forum. He had all the equipment, he had ingredients that he had sourced that you could buy from him directly. And you could buy just a small bag, a pound bag of cocoa beans from Madagascar and a small melange and even a winnower that he had built himself. So that was our starting point, just all that stuff that he had on his website and he just took it to my apartment. And I think I spent like six or nine months just working on the, just getting familiar with the ingredient and, you know, working on some recipe ideas. And just also at the same time, we had kind of started the conversation with designer friend of mine called Andre, just starting to give us some idea about uh, packaging. We had the name for some reason. The name had just kind of fallen on our lap as a working title. Amnam was just a silly gibberish really to start out with, but we thought it was funny. But Andre then basically took that idea that we gave him. We just wanted something colorful, something simple, something timeless, so to speak. Didn't necessarily have to have any kind of cocoa pots or you know, reference to where the chocolate came from. We just thought that the idea should be fun. Chocolate should be fun. It's a fun thing to eat. You're always excited about opening up up a bar of chocolate. So that was the kind of notes we we gave him. And uh, he pulled through with a lot of cool ideas and the design that we chose for the the kind of signature look that we have now was one of those that he brought in. And basically the design of the packaging and the kind of recipe making were happening simultaneously while we're just trying to figure out what kind of chocolate company we wanted to be. It was a very fun journey, those nine months that were just coming up with the look, the brand, the feel, and of course, first and foremost, what kind of flavors we wanted to play with. And and at the time, of course, I was just barely understanding how the flavors would develop if I roast them less or more, add a little less sugar, different types of sugar. What happens when we start finding better milk powder and etc so it was a lot of experiments that took place in those first nine months but i feel like we still kind of have kept that element in the company because we still today we are always working on some kind of new recipes and we have a staff of almost 30 people now so every time we bring in a new staff member within a week or two they have to make their own recipe that, that we of course help them with so it's always been about that Everybody works here, whether they work sales or finance or marketing, everybody has to come into the test kitchen and kind of come up with their idea. And we make their recipe, not necessarily for something that we want to use as a product later on, but more to have people kind of excited about the way we were excited, you know, almost eight years ago now. Back when you were playing around with names and you had the placeholder of Omnum, did you think up any other ideas? I mean, what else was on the table? <laughs> Something very Viking, Icelandic sounding name, Saga, which is a very classic, something you would put on Iceland product. I think dark and light or dark and sun, I don't remember. There was something about light and dark. 
concept ready. But the Omnum thing just kind of stuck. And I think it was especially when uh, Andre kind of, you know, pulled up the N in the middle of the name that it made it look very symmetric that we just like, oh, that, that, that looks cool. Let's do that. That just looks cool. So I think it was just, it just came from the aesthetic more than actually what it really meant. And we thought it would just be silly. Yeah. And, and then you're like, you know, you're ready for it. You're ready for chocolate then. It makes you more comfortable immediately just from saying the word. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love also that you have all of your staff go through and make a their own flavor of bar. How did they make their own flavor? So it's usually me or my production manager that just pulls them aside and says, it's your time. <laughs> and so they sometimes get really nervous. Oh, my God, I have to come up with an idea. And then we just go through the process. What, we, what do you want to make? Do you want to make dark chocolate with an inclusion? Do you want to make a milk chocolate? Do you want to play around with some kind of vegan milk idea or just a white chocolate? So we just put the options out there and we have you know the basic recipes for everything. And, but we, we encourage people just, you know, go nuts. If you want to add seaweed, if you want to add toasted, if you want to put actually the coconuts and soy sauce beforehand, you do that, which is actually something that happened. It's probably the, it's probably the best, worst chocolate I ever had because it was a milk chocolate that was infused in soy sauce for two weeks and then we dried them off. And then we made milk chocolate out of it. And then I think he had also tahini and sesame seeds. And it was so weird, and but still in a weird way, I couldn't stop like going for another bite, but I didn't think it would ever reach a production state, but I still, it's probably one of the most memorable bars that somebody made here in-house. But I, it, it's all about just, you know, you can't teach creativity, but I think everybody is in a way creative. So it's that kind of mentality where we're just looking for, you know, you, whatever comes out, we'll try it. It's There's no stupid idea. It also sounds like a very creative way to delay a project from your boss. <laughs> yeah. I think we have already something in gin at the moment that we're trying out. We're trying out different Ooh, gin with a gin maker, which is, that might actually turn into something, maybe a special edition for next summer, but yeah. It's always something that we want to be in the works. It can take sometimes years for something to finally come to fruition. When I first had your chocolate many years ago, all of these creative flavors that you're known for now hadn't quite come come to fruition yet. You were doing a lot more single origins, but now you're working with three origins. Is that right? Three, uh, four, actually. Uh, we have the Peru bar, which is the only 100% chocolate bar that we make. And uh, we don't really know what's going to happen. Luis Mancini, who was our connection to it, passed away last March. So we haven't had any connection how we want to proceed, whether we want to continue with it. But other than that, we have, of course, the Madagascar, Nicaragua, and Tanzania. What was your first origin ever? The one I tested or tried? Yeah, yeah. I mean, both, I guess. From what we tested in the beginning, I think we had some cocoa beans from Venezuela. I still can kind of recall the flavor. There were like three variations. And I just made a very simple 70% chocolate recipe in my kitchen. That kind of eureka moment the day after, after you kind of melange the nips for at least 24 hours. And it's getting smooth and you can taste the flavor development just almost hour by hour. 
that was an amazing one because it didn't taste like anything I tried before. It was that kind of moment that just gave me that kind of confidence that I can do this. This is simple in, in a sense. Um, making chocolate is a lot more simple than baking a cake. You cut out the harvesting and fermentation and all that. But just when you have the ingredients in your hand and you just need to roast them, you just need to winnow them, and then you just need to crush them and blend them with sugar. But a single origin dark chocolate, I mean, it's a very simple process. But having said that again, you can then start to manipulate the roasting and the kind of time that it's in the melanger and the way you temper it. If you have really good ingredients, you can't go wrong. That And that applies to any kind of cooking with anything. Yeah, I think people don't think that much about the raw materials and the importance of having really good raw materials. Yeah, and that was never a mindful thing that I started out thinking about, like how things are made at the plantation, where the cocoa fruit comes from, what are the living conditions of people who live there. I was never really mindful in the beginning of about it. I was just more thinking about what is the best flavored cocoa bean around. And then when, of course, you start looking into it, there's a lot of care taken uh, during the steps from harvest to fermentation that you don't really sometimes know about. And you really have to go there. Like the only origin trip we've ever taken was to Nicaragua. And then you kind of get a lot more appreciation for the whole process that it takes until a bag of beans is all shipped to Reykjavik, Iceland. And you have a better understanding and you're much more kind of, I want to say not grateful, but more, you want to do it justice. You want to, you know, you want to treat this as a carrot that some farmer picked out of the ground just the morning before. And you need to kind of feel like, you know, this has taken time to grow. Somebody's been taking care of it and you don't want to mess it up. Yeah. You want to give it the same reverence that the farmers did. Absolutely. How long did it take you all to, to settle into those few origins that you're working with right now? Uh, it took a little while because I started out with the Madagascar and then we chose a Papua New Guinea origin. And I, what I liked about the Papua New Guinea flavor that we were getting was it had that smokiness that's very associated to Papua New Guinea cacao. And then the Madagascar, which you get from Bertolakison, had that kind of fruity, red berries, you know, citrus note. So those two flavors, we chose them because they were such a contrast. And we thought, because we kind of like, we're just thinking about our market here in Iceland, which is very small, as you can imagine. And we wanted to kind of showcase how cocoa beans can vary. And we needed something that just stood out from each other. So we had the smoky, kind of dark you know, almost tobacco flavor from the Papua New Guinea and the other citrusy, fruity from the Madagascar. So when you had those side by side, when we went to like farmer's market and giving out sample, people were like, oh, wow, I didn't know that chocolate could taste so different because it's so different from what most people would buy at supermarkets. Something mass produced, something very just classic, bitter, dark. So that was the kind of reason we chose that. Uh, we discontinued the Papua New Guinea later on because we just didn't have any kind of direct contact to anybody who was behind those beans, as aside to the Madagascar beans. So, and also they just varied in, qual in quality and they were never the same. So that was kind of when we started looking into, you know, we have to start looking into the backstory. Where are things coming from? Who's behind it? Is there anybody we can talk to, you know, 
it's not that I want to complain about the fermentation or the lack of the quality, but I just need to know, is there anybody behind this? And there was never any company that stood behind the Papua New Guinea beans that we were getting. So we thought it would be the right choice to discontinue it for that reason. Uh, from there on, we started working with Coco Camilli in Tanzania, which is a total different thing that the Madagascar is a bigger region that they're getting the cocoa beans from, but you at least have somebody who can inform you about their business, their methods, and so on. So it really started from there that we started looking into it in that sense. Uh, Nicaragua came in the same way. We met actually the representative from Ingemans who worked with several farmers in Nicaragua and we got samples sent and we just immediately loved them. We, we've been getting samples a lot in the years, as you can imagine. And there's been a lot of different cocoa beans that I love, that I would love to start using. But we felt like, okay, we had these three, and I think it's it's a good setup for us at least. I mean, you can expand your single origin line a lot, but truth be told, it's not a big seller for us. So it has to be, you know, it also came as a business decision. Like our production line can only run so many hours a day. We can only produce so much of this, and this is outselling this. So can we? push this one in as well. So it, it becomes also like a business decision how much you can expand some of your origin lines. And, uh, maybe I was always thinking I could do more special editions, but as we've grown and the uh, demand has increased a lot, and, and it did increase a lot last year during COVID, by the way. So that's another story, but we felt that we've had to be managing our production line a lot better. It seems like you also need a certain level of consistency. It doesn't need to be the exact same from batch to batch, but knowing that you're not going to suddenly get super smoky notes or super earthy notes when before it was fruity mm -hmm. would be really important when your flavored bars make up so much of your inventory. That's true. That's true. I mean, it's more easier to control that. I mean, with dark single origin chocolate, you're always going to get those nuances between harvests. It's, it's, usually it's not that a lot, but you could sometimes even just see that the fat content of this harvest is a little bit off from last year. So we do add a little bit of cocoa butter to all our single origin. And it's mostly because of the production line. It just flow better during tempering session. But we notice that sometimes the fat content is off and sometimes it's lower than usual. So we might have to add half or more percent of cocoa butter just to get it more fluid again. So, but the flavor usually generally is the same. But I do like that the nuances are there. But if you're very dramatic between seasons, then that's another thing. For instance, if the Madagascar doesn't have the kind of citrusy red berry fruit, and has something totally different, something more earthy or something, then I would say, okay, th there's definitely something wrong. If it doesn't have the core flavor, then you would say, okay, I, we need to go back and ask, you know, is there something wrong with this harvest? Should we check on something else? Or because this is not the same flavor. But generally speaking, you know, you always have the kind of core flavor that you always find at the beginning. And you always look for that when you're getting a new harvest in and you're testing it out. I know a lot of people are probably more familiar with your uh, licorice and sea salt bar, which is in white. But I mean, what were the first few flavored bars that you all wanted to do? And how long did they take to come to fruition? I know not everything's immediate. No, to, uh, licorice bar was one that we just immediately 
what to work with when we started. You know, we started in 2013. I think we made around 3,000 bars. That was in from September to December. Our total production, the five bars that we started out with, which was the Madagascar and the Papua New Guinea, the Dark Sink Origins. We had a milk of Madagascar. A milk variant of the Madagascar, uh, something called dark milk burnt sugar, which was a blend of uh, Belize and Dominican Republic cocoa beans and some caramelized sugar. We had the white chocolate called Dirty Blanc, which was uh, also Dominican cocoa butter uh, odorized with some caramelized sugar. We immediately saw that the white caramelized chocolate butter was the one that was outselling all the other ones. You, you, you start to get a better grasp what the market or what people want. You know, I wanted to be pushing out the single origin, but I kind of knew also that I wanted something that I want to create from scratch, like the Dirty Blonde, which was, like I say, basically white chocolate with caramelized sugar. And I think with white chocolate, it was always kind of the kind of chefy me who that's where I get a kind of clean canvas where I can start playing with different spices or ingredients or inclusions and create something that's not out there, like nothing that's being produced by somebody else. You know, you, you start seeing many chocolate makers have the same single origin, getting from the same cocoa beans, and there's a market for it, for sure. But if you want to get a little foothold in the market, you're going to need something that's totally you or an ingredient from your region or country. I, I, I wasn't kind of like business-minded when I started in this, but immediately when you start seeing reaction from customers and feedback, you kind of start thinking in that way. You, all, you always want to do something that you want to do, but you also have to be kind of mindful. All my ideas won't necessarily fit the market. There's a lot of you know risks to be taken if you want to do that. And in the beginning, we were playing with a lot of weird concepts that we wanted to just push out and just say, no, this is us. We want to do this. We want to be weird. But you also have to accept back and say, okay, okay, we can do it, but we don't have to go overboard with the idea. Licorice was something that is very common here in Iceland. You go to any supermarket or gasoline station, you will always find a full aisle of milk chocolate and licorice kind of blended together. And it's, I think it's just that kind of combination of sweet and salty that really works together. Uh, a lot of people don't like the licorice flavor, but here in Iceland, for instance, you it has to be salty in order to work. So I tried, you know, I can make the licorice candy itself. You know, licorice is, is, of course, a root, and to extract the flavor from it, you need to steam it and then have it crushed. So you're kind of extracting uh, the kind of juice from it, and then that gets dried up, and then you have the powder. So we got a hold of the powder and we just started adding that into a very classic white chocolate mix. And that was another kind of eureka moment. It was just like there, the flavor just worked. And adding, of course, some salt, that just brings it home. That bar actually became the reason we exist today. That was the bar that we found for the market at home that started to sell and outsell everything else that we had. And we're just making four times more of that bar than total of all the other chocolate bars. So it really helped that we brought in, you know, familiar flavor for the Icelandic market. And also it became kind of a love-hate between anybody else who didn't live in Iceland. Like if we take it to the States, people didn't really understand the label because we write licorice in, like we write in Icelandic, lacris, and then and sea salt. So that was the only English thing. So people usually thought it was a milk chocolate with sea salt. 
like they didn't see the word lacris. So when they were tasting it, they were like, well, okay, this tastes like no other milk chocolate I've tried. And you didn't want to correct them, just kind of like had it as your like inside joke. So you're just kind of laughing on the inside because then you could see it. Wait, is that licorice? And you're like, yes. Oh, I hate licorice, but I love this. So it, that was always like a fun moment. Yeah, I brought that licorice and, and sea salt bar to a gathering last week, and it got very divisive but mixed reviews. Yeah. People either <laughs> yeah. loved it or they didn't hate it but really didn't want it anymore. No, no I can't. But, I mean, people liked it more than I might have expected based on how much people hate licorice here. I can imagine why. <laughs> I mean, a lot of time when we get uh, Japanese tourists here to the shop, they would see, like, is that licorice? And there was, like, no way I'm touching that because in their culture, licorice is something that's also used for maybe teas or some kind of medicine. Mm. So in their mind, they can't get around it that it's actually something we eat as candy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can, I can sort of understand that. It's only been really presented to me as candy, but I now also take it as a medicine yeah it's sometimes added to cough syrup as well so what are some other icelandic flavors that you find it difficult to describe like you have to taste it to understand um i mean we have that kind of classic rotten shark thing that we eat once a year it's more of the older generation that prefers i'm not a big fan it can, but it but it does have a weird kind of cheesy flavor like a very strong french cheese even though you're eating like a fermented shark, but it's it's salty and funky, so to speak. Dry fish. I mean, we eat like fish jerky almost as a snack every day. Uh, some people who come here and see us eating like dried fish as we're eating potato chips, just like, what are you doing? It's very good for you. It is. It is very good. And uh, seaweed, like dried seaweed, is also eaten a lot as a snack here as well. So... I mean, flavors of Iceland, it's really hard to describe. I mean, I feel like the kind of culinary culture we have here is very poor. We're very kind of influenced by the Danish culture because we were, of course, back in the days of colony. And when we got our independence, we were still the only university you could go to was in Copenhagen. We have a mixed Scandinavian tradition in our cuisine, but nothing really you can call Icelandic. You know, everything has some kind of connection to either Denmark, Sweden, or Norway. But I think in the just past 10 years, there's been this new Nordic food cuisine, which is something that Noma started maybe 15 years ago in Copenhagen. So it's more been about looking into what do we have? to eat really what can we grow and what can we do with it and i think there's a lot of new ideas being coming up in the past 10 years i think fermenting has been kind of the hot thing in kitchen but i mean we we grow vegetables in iceland in greenhouses so we always have fresh cucumbers and tomatoes on hand all year round there's a there's a big uh, greenhouse community at the south coast of iceland Fish is what we really are all about. Fish is our major export. And you grow up eating fish three times a week in Iceland, boiled, fried, pan fried, whatever, oven baked. Does Iceland import a lot of food? Yeah, it does. I mean, we import a lot of food. We import a lot of the vegetables as well. I mean, we do grow some, but 
it is changing. I think we're just becoming a part of a bigger world, you know, bigger part of the food world, of course. But I think, you know, any kind of nations like Iceland needs to have a food production, like now in COVID, you know, import didn't stop, but it's always good to fall back on having your own food production just in case, you know, if something happens, God forbid. What has the pandemic been like mentioning COVID? What, what's it been like from Iceland and from the capital specifically? How is it affecting Omnam? In the beginning, it affected us greatly. We've been very, I think, dependent on tourists. Uh, you know, most of our products are sold in the duty-free at the international airport or just our biggest client. So the lack of tourists just saw the sales drop just dramatically. We've been exporting to the U.S. in 2014, and it's been growing steadily since then. Uh, some export to Europe and Asia as well. But our biggest market has always been here at home. We started kind of selling in supermarkets uh, just before COVID, so maybe a year before. So it was a decision that we talked about whether we should be a supermarket brand. But I think, look at the market in Iceland, we're very small market but so we thought like we'd need to have our products on display where people are buying their groceries so i think it, it was a good decision that we had done that before at least COVID hit us so we have gained a kind of small foothold it's not something that we do outside of iceland i mean we're more like now we're in whole foods and we're in these kind of better shops and delis but the icelandic market we needed to tackle it a little differently just so we have something to keep the lights on but during COVID, we did have to start laying off people because, you know, we had a course that were available here every day and that just ceased, of course. And it wasn't until we just got a little lucky break during mid-July, just a year ago from now, we had a film crew that was filming an episode with Zac Efron for Netflix. And that was back in 2018. They came to the factory. Uh, I made some chocolate with Zach and Darren Olin, who is co-host. Then they left and then we didn't know if that show was ever going to get aired. And then I think two weeks or a week before they got aired, they sent us a mail like, we're going to premiere the show now in mid-July. You're going to be on it. You're going to get like three or four minutes on it. And we're like, okay, wow. And when it premiered, everything just went nuts in the U.S. So we had set up an online store in the U.S. It's just a specific... Uh, online shop that did there. We have the fulfillment center as well. So everything was set in place. There wasn't a lot of sales going on, but as soon as that show got aired, it just, we, we emptied it within 24 hours. And so we had to start shipping out pallets and pallets of chocolate because the demand suddenly just skyrocketed literally overnight. So that was a grace for us, a big lucky break that we got that kind of publicity and it meant that we could hire all this task back that we had laid off and even had to hire some more help. And we had to ask people to come out of their summer vacation just to, you know, start producing again because we didn't know how long this was going to last. And since then, we've had like a steady sales, specifically in our online website. Uh, and it just really gave us that kind of lifeline that we were just needed. And not a lot of companies could say the same, but we've gotten really lucky with that one. It really changed the kind of mood and everything. I mean, technically speaking, in June, I was pitching to Oscar that we should turn our shop into an ice cream shop just to get people in the door again. So we had ice cream machines lying around, soft serve, and 
I had this idea that I've had in my head for a long time, but the kind of timing was right. So we opened up an ice cream shop as well, which has been doing really well since we opened it. And it's gotten a lot more, uh, you know, people from Reykjavik and, and now tourists are coming back to the shop. So it's helped us a lot, but our lucky break really happened with that episode. Wow. I mean, what's the story of how Zach Efron ended up in your factory specifically? <laughs> did he reach out to you all or did you uh, enter so a contest? Or? No, I, I mean, <laughs> you would think, but no, it was uh, the production crew was looking for, I don't know if you've seen the show, it's more about the kind of sustainability of what we can do for a better environment and food production and energy yeah. and so, so he's kind of like going around the world doing all these things. And so they're in Iceland and they had scouted out some location and for some reason we came on their radar because we were making chocolate the way we make it, we're sourcing it the way we do. And they thought it'd be a fun thing uh, for the guys just to come in, maybe take a break from looking at geothermal energy plants and stuff like that. So, and it, you know, uh, sometimes these things don't work out. You know, I could have been in a bad mood that day and it wouldn't have been as fun as it was, but, you know, it just worked out. We had a good chemistry and uh, I'm very grateful that they did come. So, What's been the aftermath of airing the episode in terms of what it seems to have allowed you to do? It seems like you got all of your staff back plus a lot and you were able to open the ice cream shop is that attached to your factory or yeah so we actually had a shop the shop really just closed down during covid there was just not any foot traffic anymore around so but people were still going out to ice cream shop like maybe i need to explain the ice cream thing about iceland we are nuts about ice cream uh, 20 you know 12 months a year every day it's a phenomenal. You just go to an ice cream shop after dinner around nine o'clock. So it, it's a thing. People just go there to hang out, but you always go out for ice cream. There's never a bad idea to go out for ice cream, whether it's a snowstorm or sunny or rainy. It doesn't matter. You go to an ice cream store. I've always wanted to open up my own ice cream shop, but maybe do it a little bit in an online way. So I decided that we do the kind of soft serve culture that we have here. And we do a lot of these kind of mixings where you add your own fruits or candies and kind of have a big ball of it. But I went with the way of doing restaurant desserts meet soft serve. So that's the kind of theme that we have. So we're doing a lot of the sauces and crunches and the kind of stuff that you add into it. We're doing decorations. We're making French macarons and trying to make it look a little elegant and fun. But, you know, at the same time, of course, tasty and just coming up with some new flavors. It's giving me more creative space, something that I can just come up with it and do it within a week instead of like when we're working on chocolate, it kind of sometimes takes up to two years to get something done. So it's a more of a feeling for me like I'm working in a restaurant, just coming up with something new for the menu. And it's it's been a lot of fun. Wow. I mean, I know that for most chocolate makers, the summertime tends to be the slowest time. But with all of the tourism that typically happens in Iceland during the summer, do you all have any downtime specifically or down season? I, mean, I think our biggest downtime is after Christmas. January, February tends to be a kind of like the slowest month. And uh, May, April, May as well. We do... Easter products now, so it used to be a very slow season for us, but now when we started doing Mr. Carrots or Easter Bunny, 
we started to find a new season where we get busy again. But yeah, generally January and then kind of like May, just before like summer hits full time. That's maybe our biggest downtime. Usually around summertime, it's busy, like in the shops around Iceland, at least. And with the ice cream shop now, I think we've been actually more busy than ever. This is our first real summer with the shop. Uh, but usually around summertime, we've actually started uh, producing some of the chocolates that we're going to be tempering for the Christmas season. So we start kind of gearing up then. Also, lots of staff members are taking summer holidays at that time. So we try to kind of amplify the chocolate production. So we're ready and set in August because that's when we start our kind of Christmas production. Yeah, I, I remember reading that you said you always had visitors at a certain point pre-pandemic at a time we can all sort of remember. You always have have people visiting the factory, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. We had like scheduled tours every day at two o'clock, so you'd have a lot of chocolate tastings, also different types of works and friend groups would come uh, want to do something with us. Uh, we used to have like beer and chocolate nights, coffee and chocolate night, tea and chocolate nights. So, yeah, I'm missing a lot of those things. That was a lot of fun. And just meeting people, letting them sample, getting some feedback. And just, yeah, just generally, I think, being with people again is probably what we miss the most. When you have friends come to visit the factory, come to visit Iceland in general, are there any places in, in Reykjavik that you tend to bring people? Probably a couple of restaurants that I like to take them to. Um you know, the, there's a lot of out, nice outdoor area around Reykjavik. We are situated in a bay. We have the mountains not far from us, huge mountains. There's some forest area, though you don't find a lot of forests in Iceland, but there's some around the island. But for the first time somebody comes, maybe it will take them a little bit outside of Reykjavik. You know, see the good Boskesir, the golden circle, as you call it. See it's the golden waterfall and Geysir. And now, of course, if you're coming now, I would definitely take you to, or you or somebody else, uh, to the volcano that's been erupting now for the past three months. Wait, what? Which is not far from the... the... So, how oh, you heard. Okay, so we had, uh, during February, we started getting these lot of earthquakes, and it's lasted for almost like a month, and people are saying, okay, something is about to erupt. And then it erupted, and then there was one volcano, then there were two, and then there were seven, and then uh-huh. one survived, all the other one quit. And it's only like a 30-minute drive from Reykjavik, and you could, initially, you could hike up there, and you were standing so close to it, it was so hot, and it was just erupting straight in front of you. It's in a valley, not far from the Blue Lagoon, but now the lava flow has dramatically increased. Now, you can't get very close to it, but it's... It looks like it's not going to stop for a while. There hasn't been an eruption in that area for 800 years, so there's like no uh, reference of this, how long this could take. So now it actually might reach the ocean, so that means it will cut off the road. So it's been quite interesting. It's If you go, we, we can watch it live on TV from different perspectives, and people now just tend to turn it on in the morning with their morning coffee and just look at the live feed from the volcano. It sounds very calming uh, in a weird way. It is. I mean, it's far away from uh, any town. Well, there is one town not far away from, but it looks like it's not in danger as of now. 
But, you know, we never know about these things because we have maybe volcano eruptions on average every five years or something that happens. Usually it's not close to any town or villages, but that has happened. So I actually come from a, a, I'm, where I'm born is called Vestman Island. It's off the south coast of Iceland. And there was a volcano eruption there back in 73. This is some years before I was born, but my parents lived there. And my older brother, who was four at the time, uh, had to evacuate the island, you know, in, in the night. You know, they just had to take a boat. And the, it erupted on the island itself. And nobody thought it would ever be possible. There was a 3,000-year-old volcano on the island, but this new one just was totally different and it erupted I think for six months and then they had to come back there was so much debris of lava all over the place and ash so literally for six months they were just digging houses out of the ashes and lava and you kind of had to rebuild the town in two years I can't even imagine that it's crazy I'm sure to think of all of that when you're looking at the volcano being active now when i'm like six years old you know my mom will just point to that mountain erupted 10 years ago and, you, and in your head you're like six years old you're up there playing you can feel it still warm <laughs> it was so felt so far far away from you but you know it, it's the kind of reality we live in here you know there could always be a volcano somewhere erupting iceland is a strange and wild country and we tell people, like <laughs> tourists who come here, who want to go hiking or driving or something, that don't treat this as Disneyland. This is it. This is real nature, real life. You don't get a second chance. There are dangers everywhere. There are places that rescue workers won't go and get you if you're not using common sense or anything. And also the weather here can change dramatically just in, in a couple of hours. So we always say just this is nature. So be careful. Don't risk your life for a selfie. Mm-hmm. It's the far north. There's there's some elements you just cannot predict about life there. That's true. Those are all of my questions. And also, okay. is there anything else you'd like to share that you haven't had the chance to yet before we sign off? Uh, I don't know. I mean, heading towards maybe, we're, we're just looking very optimistic for the remainder of the year. I think the restrictions that have been in Iceland during COVID are hopefully going to be all lifted by the end of the month. And uh, I feel like we're just very optimistic coming out of this pandemic for the future and hopefully get to travel more. I would say for Omnon, what we are doing now, I, we are still eight years past now. We're still kind of trying to figure out what we are doing i mean sometimes people say like we have everything very thought of but it's a lot of spur of the moment ideas that just somehow work and sometimes they don't but i think maybe in the future what i want to do for them is maybe define a little bit better our product portfolio i definitely think our dna will always be chocolate whether we're doing ice cream or if we move into pastry or something but there are some ideas that we're floating around maybe something will come to fruition that's great I, I i did want to say i had this um caraway white chocolate i think you made it for a cacao review several yes. years back so yeah. so good and i really want you to release that bar again even though it was probably <laughs> so much work 
That was Michael Ryan, one of my staff who made that. He, that was his idea to use the rye bread and caraway. That's an American coming to Iceland and then figuring out the flavor. So they took an American to make that part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it made it for probably mostly Americans. So yeah, that's perfect. It was really, I think we still have some of those bars lying around here somewhere. Thank you so much for listening to this extended interview from Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In fact, please share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. An especially huge thank you to Kjartan for being in this episode. To learn more about Omnom Chocolate, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damekakao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm-hmm.